hey, we're going to go here for drums. It's weird. It turns into like a field trip feel when you're a kid. But like, <laughs> we're going to go somewhere else today. And yeah. Yeah. You put everyone on the yellow school bus and you have yeah. to count everyone on the bus and count everyone off the bus. Okay, buddies. Where's the bass player? He's our back smoking. <laughs> Hey, Prog fans, welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I am joined by Craig and Lee. We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you just can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. As we get started tonight, before we get into the interview with Jeff, I wanted to do a quick round of our check-in like we normally do, and I'll start with you, Lee. What have you been up to since we last talked? Mostly working and not enough time in the studio, which are both unfortunate. And when I get downtime, mostly I'm trying to listen to music. So I plan to spend part of our hiatus over the summer writing in the studio. Our family is now all fully vaccinated and more than two weeks out. So we have started getting out, doing some hiking and going to restaurants, seeing my son again. So things are definitely looking up. And how about you, Craig? What have you been up to? Today is officially, I am two weeks post-second vaccine, so I celebrated by going on a maskless hike with friends. Did about six miles. Nice. Uh, what else? We're an hour and nine minutes away from the Chinese uh, spacecraft crashing somewhere in the U.S. It's looking like it might be the Western United States, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> if you'd never hear this episode, that's why. Uh, also, I'm getting ready to go visit my girls in New York. And last time I went out, we drove and I took my 88 key synthesizer slash piano with, and that's not going to happen this time. So I bought one of those foldable MIDI piano controllers. Yeah. It's lightweight. It folds into half and then it's easy to fit in a suitcase. What's cool is I found a piano plugin for my phone. Uh-huh. So you basically just plug the piano into the phone, plug headphones into the phone, and it's like playing a piano. Nice. What about you, Tony? Um, mostly work, but then we got a dog, which I didn't <laughs> yes. think was going to happen. <laughs> I've been like dragging my feet on this forever, but my wife and my daughter have been pushing on it. And so finally, literally today, we found a great fit for our family. Mm-hmm. We think he's mostly coonhound and his name's Finn. We'll see. Maybe if I can figure out how to make the HTML work, I'll throw a picture of Finn in the show notes. So nice. Cool. So, guys, as we wrap up our first season here, woohoo, we finished the season. Um, I don't think we can leave without discussing the elephant in the room, which is the brand new Frost record. Yes. The new record is called Day and Age. Talk about what we think of the new record. Incredible. Love it. I tell you what, I have listened to the freaking album so many times over the past couple of days. This is really a phenomenal piece of work, you know? Yeah. It really is. 
I've said multiple times, I think this is a watershed prog album, but I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons for that for me is I see some of the pop history of Jem and John coming out here. Sure. And it's like the gateway drug album I'm going to use to get people into prog because it gets just poppy enough for people to feel comfortable and then it'll go off in a very proggy direction and then come back to some poppy stuff. I think that's, it's amazing. You know, reading the liner notes for 13 winners and then talking to deck, it's clear that the first few albums were pretty much Jim leading with some contributions from other people. I think you saw a little bit of co-writing on falling satellites with songs like signs. But after you see the post about Jim and John renting the lighthouse and writing I think this is the first time it's a real 50-50 writing mix, and I think it's taken Frost to the next level. Yeah, I'm really hoping that turned into this amazing songwriting team, and this is the beginning, not the end. Yeah, I agree. I would say that this is the first one, especially someone relatively new, this feels like a band and not just an experiment. Interesting. I agree with that. Yeah. This is very cohesive to me. Yeah. And that's an interesting comment, because... If you, again, consider, you know, writing from the Coast Guard Lighthouse and all that, this almost certainly had to be guitars, keys first. Mm -hmm. Again, I think it speaks to both of their professional skills as writers and producers. But I think it's very cohesive. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would really miss Craig Blundell on this album, but the drums are really well done. There's three guest drummers between all the songs, and it fits really, really well. It seems like the drums are kind of forward in the mix, and I love it. It's very propulsive. It keeps all the songs moving. It's very much an equal partner. I really have been enjoying the, uh, the story of the boy who could stand still or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. The boy who stood still. Yeah, that's my favorite track on the entire album. It's a freaking science fiction story. Yeah, I really like the story piece, but I ordered the deluxe edition. And so it's mm-hmm. got the mm-hmm. instrumental version of that song. And I think it's a great instrumental track as well. It starts with that quarter note offbeat keyboard and then it rises and falls in multiple movements all through that song john mitchell's guitar work on that is just amazing there's one line in that song and i meant to write it down but i didn't the words that he's saying and the little drum pattern and it's just like one or two bars but the drums are exactly in line with what he's saying and it's just like this beautiful little hit Mm mm-hmm I was sitting here before we started recording and I was listening to it on my studio monitors and there's just so much complexity Mm -hmm. buried in this record. It's just amazing. There are so many little cool little synthesizer Mm -hmm. chunks where it says, and then he disappeared. And then two bars later, it says disappear. Yeah. There's a melody in that rhythm track that just goes, plays it over and over. And I thought it was John on guitar until I listen on monitors, and I'm pretty sure it's a synth now. And I don't know why, but I just love that line. It just fits that song perfectly. Yeah, and I liked, I really enjoy the extended version of Day and Age. Like, there's oh, just totally. a lot there. Let's show the listeners what we're talking about. This is a little clip from the title track from Day and Age by Frost.
one of the other standout tracks to me is Kill the Orchestra. Oh, God. I think that is such a well-written song. I love that. After they've gone through the verses, they actually do a reprise of the break of Day and Age. Yeah. And then they move yep. seamlessly into Repeat to Fade. Um, would you consider this a concept album or just an album with a lot of overriding themes? No, I don't consider it a concept album. What about you, Tony? I don't think it's a concept record either. I think it's a very thematic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's got a common theme, but I don't necessarily call it a concept record. I agree. Let's talk about how dark it is, because these are some cynical damn lyrics, man. It is. Yeah. Go get your seven-year-old to record, you scum. You s- yes, scum. <laughs> I don't have the CD yet, so I haven't been able to really look at the words. Yeah. But it, yeah, it seems like a lot of just be a lemming and just live your life. And it has, doesn't have as much meaning as you think. And Definitely. I think one of the most underrated pieces of Frost that no reviewer or interview goes into are their lyrics. And that's one of the first things I would ask Jim about in an interview. I think some of their lyrics are incredible. There's a song on Falling Satellites called lights out that the first time i realized what i think it's about i got shivers all the way up my back wonderland million town heartstrings dividing line so many good lyrics in the frost catalog what do you guys think of the instrumental the second album the instrumental mix yeah i think from now on i'm just going to buy deluxe editions of all these cds i care about I use those a lot at work. Um, if it really has vocals, then I can't really concentrate. But if it's just the music, my yeah. head will kind of fill in lyrics here and there, and I can still concentrate. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I just pick up so much more detail. Again, The Boy Who Stood Still. Instrumental is such a different song than it is with the narration. One of the tunes, I forget which one, I think it's the second one. It kind of has a police synchronicity vibe to it. Terrestrial. Yeah, it's got kind of the same drum beat and the guitars sort of feel the same. Yeah. And if you think about synchronicity, that too is, it's 1980s, but it's sort of dystopian as well. Yeah. Uh And that kind of ties into Tony's comment about the pop feel and also a very thematic album as well. Yeah, actually, that's my favorite police album, to be honest. Uh So what do you guys think about the fact that there's no real flashy instrumental solos on this thing? That's part of what makes it feel approachable to me for my non-prog fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To me, it really makes the writing just stand out even that much clearer. You know, there's not a 32-bar screaming solo on top of another verse. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I do, too. There's one song. It's at the very, very end of one of the songs. And it's like a synthesizer solo that's while it's fading out. Anytime there's really a solo, it feels more like another thematic piece yes. that's going to get repeated again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely not a solo. Yeah. It just doesn't feel like there are solos. It just feels like the mix shifts. Yeah. Things are there the whole time, but then just the mix shifts and brings it forward and pushes the other stuff back rather than really doing a traditional highlight of a solo. It's just, mm-hmm. It feels really natural to me, and I love it. Yes. Okay, before we dive into the interview, are there any news or new releases that you guys want to highlight before we jump in? New Kayaks out. I haven't gotten to listen to it yet because I have been absorbed with Frost Day and Age. More touring information is starting to come out now. One of the ones that caught my eye is Symphony X with Haken backing them up in New York. That might be a road trip. And Caligula's Horse is doing a live stream that I've signed up for. Yep. 
It's June 6th, live from Australia, which means it's about 3.30 in the morning for me, so I'll be watching in my PJs, slamming coffee, but I will be there. Uh, Craig, anything from you? As I was uh, surfing around and learning about John Mitchell, I learned about his production company, and then I learned that he produces Kairos, and then I learned that Kairos is going to be touring at the end of the summer through England. Road trip. Yep. Yeah, you know, maybe. We're all vaccinated. We're all vaccinated, and uh, we could get on a nice Petri dish of an airplane and fly to South England. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I'm starting to see a lot more dates starting mm-hmm. to happen. People are really starting to try and get out there. I saw Genesis has a handful of dates. Hawkwind has some dates. And this is just Tony conspiracy theory corner for a moment. <laughs> I have been seeing a lot suspiciously for about the past four months from Gentle Giant. You know, they have been in the news quite a bit. Yeah, they have. Coincidentally, since we did an episode on them. Yeah, that really was what kicked it off. Since we pumped them back up. I mean, I'm not saying that there was a correlation there, but I'm also not not saying that there was a correlation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and without further ado, let's go talk to Jeff. If you've been listening to our episodes for quite a while, You've heard me rant and rave from time to time. This sounds like it could have been a really great record, but the mix is really shitty. Like, it's hidden under a really bad mix. Or, I don't know why the drums are so forward, or the vocals are so far back, and and things like that. And so, what I wanted to do is talk to someone who actually knows what the hell's going on. How things actually get recorded, why things are recorded the way they are. Tonight, everyone, we're talking to Jeff Vicente. He is an accomplished uh, studio recording artist himself, as well as a mixing engineer. Before we get into all the technical stuff, Jeff, I just wanted to say, how are you doing tonight and what are you up to these days? Uh, Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this with you. I'm doing all right. I'm two weeks out from my second shot, feeling a lot more positive about the world. Awesome. We're kind of hopefully on the tail end of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think I saw recently, Jeff, you got your second stab, right? Yeah. Uh, I got my second stab. I'm now two weeks out from it. I am fully vaccinated. Where I was going with that is, are you starting to see a feel in like the entertainment industry? Because COVID is starting to maybe wind down. People are starting to get more excited about work and stuff like that. In my line of work specifically, I run with maybe two or three different camps. For mine, since right now, my big thing is voiceover. With places like SAG, that's considered a single person record. So myself as a studio manager and engineer, I've actually had to become a COVID compliance officer for this. So I was certified basically at the beginning of the pandemic, make sure everything's right so that we could be able to get back to work. To multi-step the answer, on my level, there's a good, very positive shift between I refuse to go in, I don't want to go in, I'm very scared, Mm -hmm. to now... I feel on a personal level, really positive on my first and second dose. I came back here to my office and I actually passed out. I think it was from relief. Like, I'm like, oh, (laughs) this is actually really cool. And it puts ease to my actors, to uh, anyone I work with, to the other people in my building. For filming aspects, there's also a lot of different feels going on too. Film professionals were actually changed to be considered essential workers here in L.A., Mm. which was really interesting because then they took us off of the essentials list once vaccinations came out. Ah, wow. That's a gotcha. The studio has probably spent upwards past $3,000 in just sanitation gear. I spend an average of 
two to three hours every day cleaning. Wow. But everyone feels better. I feel better. They feel better. We all start feeling a bit of normalcy. And I think it's giving us a real bit of hope. Yeah. Awesome. Maybe go back six, nine months. While we were in the throes of COVID-19, how were things different for you then versus how they were before? Oh, man. So <laughs> it, it was it was insane. I went from 8 a.m. starts to 8 a.m. finishes almost four or five days a week to dead in the water for seven months. Mm. Animation, dubbing, video games, things like that. Even music, I got random cold calls still from musicians asking if they can come in, and I still have to say no, mm -hmm. just because I don't know them. Right. Some production friends and I actually spent three to four weeks putting together an 18-page work-from-home basics for the actors in our area, mm -hmm. and we did two seminars, and then after that, we just pushed out this PDF and all the resource that we had free to people because... These are not only our friends, but they're our colleagues and they're scared and we don't know what's going to happen for what we initially thought and hoped was six to eight weeks, but has now turned into May. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're in change. And I'm glad you mentioned your PDF. I found that resource pretty early because I follow what you put out pretty regularly. It's a, such an amazing resource for how to select a mic and how to actually be on the mic and DAW and other software solutions. And like, it's just an amazing resource. Thank you. We tell people specifically this. We're with the working class, just like so many of our other friends and colleagues. So someone's like, hey, you didn't include this. I'm like, well, then okay. push it, push it, you know, <laughs> you know, show it off to people. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'd love to put that in our show notes for this episode for folks that are listening. Please do. Yeah. I, I, I'm more than happy to, to share it with anybody and everybody. Yeah, this is great. I'm looking at it right now. I wasn't aware of it. Thank you. Yeah. I need to change some things. It's one of my heavy resources I'm leveraging. So it's an 18 page PDF, both seminar videos, and then also I think a diagram that shows the difference between a basic home setup and a commercial grade studio. Mm -hmm. Kind of where the, the monetary value is, as well as hardware and software. And for listeners, if you're curious how you might be able to replicate something like that at home and maybe dabble in some stuff, this document that Jeff is talking about is one of my best because I've made attempts in the past at putting together a similar document. And I stopped when I came across yours, Jeff. So. <laughs> I'm actually going to share that with the other guys. It was tireless. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was tireless nights. I have to give a huge shout out to Christian Banas, who organized everything. On the technical aspects, we're all strong in different suits. But my friend Christian, he made sure everything that you guys will read and watch and look at as put together as it is. Because I can work an Excel sheet, but man, the way he put everything together in the table that that is, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really, really great. And that kind of brings me to why we're here and why I wanted to reach out to you. I first came across you, Jeff, when you were on Geek and Sundry years ago. Oh my God. You were on when it was still Alpha. <laughs> yeah. And you were on Lore Masters. And it was an episode about lore and music. Now, I'm a super big Arion fan. So if you're playing Arion Bingo at home, there you go. There's your Arion reference for me. <laughs> I was a little cringy about some of the talk about Arion on that show. <laughs> but when I heard you talk, the first reference I remember you had, you were talking about The Odyssey by Symphony X. Oh, my lords, yes.
the knowledge and the depth of your passion for this came bubbling up, I immediately went and was like, this is a person I want to talk to one day. I found out that you worked at Central Command Studios and what your job was. So as we started putting together thoughts about episodes we would do in this first season of the show, and I knew that I wanted to do something about the technical side, yours was the first name that came to mind. And talk to us about what it's really like on the front lines of recording artists for real. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. Mm -hmm. And so with that intro, how did you get started? So you mentioned you're in L.A. So are you from L.A.? How did you get started in the business? All of that. So uh, I'm from L.A. I was born and raised here. I wanted to be a teacher. It's kind of the funny, typical storybook thing where I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to go into biology and get like a doctorate. And then someone gave me a Metallica album. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even kidding. I listened to it. I freaked out. I listened to everything I could find. And then I was like, mom, can I get a guitar for Christmas? And she's like, <laughs> oh, there it goes. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Why, why not drums? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm part Filipino and Kirk Hammett is also part Filipino. Right. So I'm just like that one. <laughs> That's great. So it was that from then on, I've been playing guitar and got into music in 2004. I won't name the name of the school just because we ended things as a whole kind of roughly. Went to a school down here in LA. So I have an associates in musical education with emphasis in vocals. And then I realized it's going to be a rough job being a rock metal musician trying to do session work or have a band. I also started writing my own music, so I started getting a production. So I went back to school, got into recording, and the second quarter of schooling there, we get to do an internship. And all throughout my life, I watched anime, played video games, cartoons, and stuff like that. And I found Central Command, and that was labeled as music, television, video games, anime. And I'm like, oh, that one's a decent distance from the house. I'll go there. Mm-hmm. One thing led to another. I got a good working relationship with the owner and I ended up just sticking around, which is very beneficial for me. Right. I've been able to work with people like anywhere between Billy Ray Cyrus and Fear Factory. Mm-hmm. So we've done that kind of a spectrum here at the studio. Mm-hmm. I will never shake a stick at anybody's job because I'm honestly very lucky to have a niche job like this and pay my bills. So would you say that most of your skills and what you've learned, you learned there working as part of your internship and into your career? Or was that a school thing? If you were talking to someone else that had aspirations to be Jeff in the future, is it the path that you led or a different path to get there? I'm a very scholastic learner. So being in school for me, I absolutely loved. For people who want to get into engineering, especially nowadays, it's so great that we have all these resources online. You know, we can start off, you know, with the two channel interface, a laptop and get Reaper or Logic or something like that and just start messing around with everything. Mm -hmm. I've worked with people who started on tape. I've worked with people who started with sound designer. I think if you like learning through a book with hands-on, going to school is amazing. It'll be expensive, but for me, it was worth it. For a lot of other people, unless you 
kind of want to go through that, you can just start with your own small bit of hardware, learn trial and error, and see how you like it. Because it gets rough, to be honest. The first few years of doing this, you really learn business the hard way. It took years for me to pick up not only the amount of business, but the quality of business that I return. Right. School gave me a good baseline, but I was around so many people, thankfully and, and so graciously, that I have changed my recording style, my editing style, and my mixing style so many times over, either when I'm doing music, post-production, or ADR kind of thing right now, I have to have a different brain for each one. And each one of those took so long to develop. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what do you bring differently in each of those venues? I guess, especially as it applies to the business side of it, why you changed from a business perspective in those ways. On a business perspective, and sometimes this is a hard pill to swallow for some people, while it is a fun business and you get to work with your friends, sometimes you realize that your friends can get kind of skeezy. I have folders of contracts, whether you're appearing in a video for releases, hiring somebody, whether they're hiring me, I'm hiring them, session musician, things like that. Each one of these, I learned to write myself, put it in a language that nobody can question. Well, what do you mean by that? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that I didn't learn in school. But I also learned then I had friends who refused to pay me because they're just like, I'm sorry, my phone just doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. So you add that to the contract. Yeah. Phone doesn't work. Oh, doesn't matter. And this was one that I invoked many times. If in one calendar week, you don't get back to me when I'm asking for reviews or anything, the contract is null. You don't get the files and you still owe me my money. Yeah. Mm. And I've had to invoke that and finalize it twice. And I never want to do it again because it destroys friendships. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I bet. On the business side, have you changed how you actually record? Because of business side? Yeah. Producing friends with their music, I tell them straight up, I'm not just engineering you. And they say, yes, you want me to produce you. So I'm going to push you hard and I can come off as a dick. I can be really rough, but Mm -hmm. it's because I know you and your skill. So if I'm unrelenting, it's because I know you can do better. I actually treat a lot of my musicians the way I've treated people that I have helped in uh, physical therapy or weightlifting. Each thing that we use, our throats, our hands, they're very specific muscle groupings that we have strengths in. So if you come in cold, you're going to suck. I have to have you warm up, practice, do all these things before you're prepared. You know, it's your money that you're paying me. I'm going to get you everything that you can within that, if not less. Right. So in a musical sense, what's the kind of thing you might say to somebody like, "Uh, do that solo again? What kind of advice might you give somebody when you're in a situation like that? The biggest thing for me, I would love for them to come in with everything written mm-hmm. because if they come in, they're like, we just want to write. I look at them first and go, do you have the budget for that? Right. Right. Because if you're going to spend a whole day writing a solo, I make people average, maybe do a deposit of 10% or half up front. And if they know what they're doing, they can opt for one of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if, if they know what they're doing, they know it by heart. And it's like, great. I'm going to let you do that. If there's something that I feel that may come up when you're recording it, that I think could sound better. That's the only time I'll inject myself. Got it. Other than that, it's just like your creative process is very different than mine. So I'm not going to say anything until I feel comfortable that I know you well enough on that aspect. 
And I think it's important because it's not my song. Yeah. It's your song as the artist. The only way I would interject my creative parts in it is if we are either doing it together or I think it's going to broaden everything as a whole. Sure. Absolutely. The more I've learned about this industry and how things get recorded and how much things really cost, I have no idea where this mythos of like Nirvana or the Rolling Stones or someone like rolling into the studio. I've heard famous stories about Judas Priest just sitting in a studio for three weeks writing. And I'm like, you're paying the whole time. Like, how are you doing that? I will say definitely that age is so different. When you get a down payment from a record label, that's your income. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sure, spend it any way you want, but be ready for the taxes. Right. But they know it was going to sell. Right. Nowadays, people can just jump onto YouTube, go, ah, that song sucks. That song sucks. That song sucks. That one's cool. I'm not going to buy this album. Right. When I was growing up, I just blindly bought albums and was just like, God, I hope this one's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't get to do that anymore. I wish I had that surprise still. So I'm a huge concept record guy, right? Same, same. I really don't know how to live in the world of Spotify and YouTube. You see behind me on my shelf back here, I've got all of my earbooks. I always buy the big format of all these albums. Yeah. It's a whole thing. I I see the whole thing as a piece of art. Yeah. You mentioned labels. If you're working with an artist that's signed, do you ever find yourself in a situation where the label's like, we really want the band to sound like this, or we're trying to push them in this direction? Because we've talked about this in the past, especially artists of like the 60s, 70s, early 80s, where we've seen dissonance between where the band wanted to go and where the label wanted to take them. So this isn't my experience. This is absolutely someone else's. But I had many, many conversations about this. Pardon me for being vague about this just because it's um, (laughs) just for safety's sake. They were signed with a label and the person in charge of that part of the label loved the original sound but they left and then the new person that came in they had no idea what the intent was and i think that's an important thing is intent they're just like no if they're signed to us then we have to curate them to be how we want it how what we know is going to sell so probably 20 plus songs later they had an album and i listened to it and went what is this And they're just like, just enjoy it if you can. (laughs) You'll hear these arguments come back and forth of, hey, you signed me because you wanted this kind of sound. But the Mm -hmm. second you heard me, you heard someone else and went, if we make them merge with this kind of sound, it'll make us more money. Mm -hmm. And then you just become a puppet. I just had a conversation with somebody and was just like, I'm thinking about going an independent release with it. And I go, do it. Mm-hmm. through so many new online distributors you don't have to play with daddy labels money and their protocols because what if they just won't release it right what if they're just like we're gonna get back to you on it and then nothing happens all that time and effort and money just down the drain yeah we've talked about that on the show before especially because we're a prog show and we're seeing a lot of prog artists i'll bring up conception for an example right they were gone for 20 plus years. Yeah. Came back and they they crowdfunded everything. And I personally love that record. Yeah. And I just think it gives, as an artist, so much more liberty to get your exact vision out there. Don't you know 
Crowdfunding has its ups and its downs, but I think in the sense that we're speaking of with music, I think it's very beneficial that people utilize their audience to be like, we know what you want. Can you help Mm -hmm. us? I think that's fantastic. I have done that so many times with Devin Townsend, who Mm -hmm. has influenced me to no end musically and through production. Mm -hmm. I get what I want. He gets what he wants. And I think that symbiotic relationship is helpful. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly where I was going with that. So to come back to the actual technical stuff, as an engineer, if I'm just listening to an album, what is something that I may not really know that I could pick up on that I could go, oh, the engineer helped make that happen? I think my favorite thing to do with mixes would be knowing the ebbs and flows of the song and when to pull something down Mm -hmm. to let something else breathe. I have a couple projects that are still being finished right now that have some voiceover in it. I love the Broadway feel of things. If something comes up that you need to pay attention more, the whole track may come down so that the thing that needs that attention rises up more through the mix. And then it becomes seamless. That's down then right back up into the action. And you're just kind of like, that sounds awesome. You don't hear that whole thing shifted dynamically. Mm -hmm. Those are my favorite things. What are some prog albums that you like that are good examples of that? My go-to for what got me full into prog mode was Devin Townsend's 2007 Ziltoid the Omniscient. And I tell people, like, what is it about? It's about an interdimensional conqueror looking for the perfect cup of coffee to obtain the power of time travel. (laughs) Okay, now I know why you guys get along so well. (laughs) (laughs) But things like that where Devin did the whole album himself in his basement. Right. And he voiced every awkward little creature. Sometimes he'll stereo pan something as it moves along. It it makes you feel like you have this whole space wrapped around your head. Cool. It's amazing. (laughs) I'm a huge fan of Devin's. Uh Uh-huh. How does he get the texture in his albums? Because I try and listen for the pieces part. Oh, that's a something, something synthesizer doing a voice. But a lot of it sounds like just this lush pad and a lot of stuff on top of it. And it's very unique. And I've been trying to wrap my head around it. It's perfect the way you describe it, that you can't describe it. I can't nail it. It's a wall of sound. So he could have that one thing, but that one thing could actually be five different things layered to create what you think may be another patch. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've heard that before, but you actually probably haven't. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned technique like that, that you don't really notice until someone explains it to you. On a previous episode, when we were interviewing Deck Burke, he was talking about Jem Godfrey and how he records vocals. I guess he described it as like a pyramidal stacking style. Mm-hmm. And if you pull that away, you like obviously just a vocal line. Yeah. But when you put it all together, it's very big. Those kinds of techniques are really interesting to me from an engineering mix perspective. Mine is similar. I use the term grid. Mm-hmm. 
just like with frequencies, when you're mixing, you have the lows, the low mids, the mids, the high mids, the highs, and the, ah, uh, my ears hurt. <laughs> the dog whistle. Yeah, the dog whistles. And each one will have, for me, there are three boxes. Same thing with vocals for me. I have three boxes, lows, low cleans, low gravel, et cetera, like that. And instead of doing a unison here in the low mids, I'm going to do a octave down harmony of the main harmony here. But then over here, I'm going to do the higher up harmony so that you just create this weird staggered choir amalgamation of voices. Nice. Yeah. And also then vocals will be right up front here, but then backing vocals have such a wide range of places to go. So instead of being this space from the microphone, I can be back here. Right. I can maybe go this way, go that way. It's just going to be pushed and pulled in so many different ways to give that texture and atmosphere. Right. So as you're recording, if you hear instruments conflicting, do you have the freedom as an engineer to be able to say, hey, guys, these two instruments are occupying the same frequency range. Why don't you play that up an octave or you play that down an inversion? Can you say things like that? Nowadays, I feel I have that freedom. Okay. So for me, it depended on my time in the studio, not the session itself, but how much time I have been working in a studio, mm-hmm. how familiar I am with the music as itself, right. how familiar I am with the artist, because some artists will just be, please don't tell me what to do. And I'll just go, whatever. Yeah, no problem. And I'll back off. I'll just say, well, I'll make it work. Then some people will absolutely be, maybe move that up a third or maybe do like a second inversion for there. Yeah. And they'll go, oh, that's awesome. Or I don't like the voicing. And I was like, cool. Just wanted to try it. Okay. One of the things that I was taught in school, it's a love-hate relationship. Engineers are the means to an end. So keep your mouth shut and do your job. At the same time, I'm like, no, I'm also a babysitter. Um, I'm also (laughs) sometimes a creative outlet yeah if they turn to me and go what do you think i'm not just supposed to go yeah whatever yeah. i'm just pushing buttons right. i don't know exactly yeah well and you know your medium you're the guy i would turn to to go you know the studio you know what's going on in your place you know is this going to sound okay yeah so, yeah okay it's interesting that you mentioned that because you know i wouldn't come with that attitude if you had some randos off of the street that were coming in to record their first album had no experience that's a very different experience of them telling you just stay behind the, the panel yeah, and like, yeah. I'll do my thing versus like if tool rolls in and tells you that because they have a sound, they know what they're doing. Yeah. Right. yeah. That's when it, it rolls back to if you know exactly what you're going to do and your intent is there, then, Hey, that's great. You know, I was overstepping a boundary on what I thought could be on it. And he's like, no, we talked over this and this that, and the other. I'm like, cool. Perfect all the better to be honest so given that we've talked about the positive things that we could listen for Mm -hmm. what are some things that you could suggest to people to when they're listening maybe there was an engineer having a bad day or just a bad engineer or a common mistake that you hear in engineering and mixing edits are my most painful things if i hear an edit a line or an instrumental take i'm like you could have done better. That couldn't have made that sound. I think I want to say it's Annihilator's smear campaign. 
I think it's right before the solo section. They reuse a line, but you can tell they pushed it right up against the line before. And I'm like, no, he could have absolutely either shortened the line or he could have put it all into one piece because then it goes line, line, new line. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. ah, I don't want to listen to you anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I tell people this, the fade is your friend. Yeah. When I'm doing dialogue, uh, if I'm fading out an atmosphere, you take a long fade. If it's a guitar take, you don't want to do that. You want to start on the one. If I'm editing a vocal, you don't do it in the middle of a word. You do it at the end of a stanza or something. Right. But I also lately have just tried to take a step back and be like, listen to it as a whole. Don't dissect it. Because then, you know, I can't watch shows nowadays because I'm just <laughs> dissecting the mix. And I'm just like, <laughs> right. You go to a party with friends and you're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Why is he pushing the EQ that way? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's even worse if I'm with some actor friends and we're watching a show and they go, that flap was early. It's like, shut up. <laughs> it's like, shut up. <laughs> so have you got the opposite example where maybe like things weren't great, but like how that got mixed or how it got mastered ended up saving it or at least making it palatable? Luckily, a lot of, especially on a progressive side, over compression to me, I haven't noticed too much of it on the things that I like to listen for. So that part of the mix, that part of the master, I'm like, okay, everything sounds about where it should. We all know this. If you listen to something enough, you'll get used to it. I was mixing an instrumental album and the mastering engineer sent me so many masters because he's like, this one has more dynamics. I'm like, I really can't tell anymore. You decide. It's not my choice. You decide. Right. I think with progressive stuff, the mix is so specific that I haven't heard too many things lately that have irked me, especially bigger artists. They know exactly why they're going to a producer Mm -hmm. Um, and they'll know what kind of sound and what kind of feel they're going for. So it's like, cool. They're in good hands. So Uh, I think that's a benefit nowadays. In the prog sphere, we're dealing typically with people that really know what they're doing. They've got a specific mm-hmm. sound they're going for. And you're going to have those very exacting connoisseurs of the genre that are like, I'm here to really listen to the drums or mm-hmm. the bass or whatever. How would you as, as an engineer go about starting to construct a mix that lets all of those things shine in the appropriate light? For me, it goes back to the grid. I start with my drums and I'll do a, a rudimentary mix of how I like the drums the bass comes right on afterwards. I actually got this mix idea from Meshuga with the bass where I have two of the same tracks, but one is mixed like a guitar and one's mixed like a bass with all the high end rolled off. So you get the body of the bass helping out the low end, but then you get the pick of the finger work. If I'm using like the Sansamp pedal, the lows are off, the highs are on. I'll play with the presence. I won't make it too crunchy, but just enough to make it sound like pure attack. Then with guitars, depending on not only the subgenre in Prague, I'll dial it down a lot on the gain so that 
the clarity is more there and everything will have its place on the grid that's when the dynamic mixing of uh pushing something down in a new section when uh, another part comes up um i love doing that with every different part uh, honestly everything but drums so that everything has breathing room mm-hmm. fitting it in the grid part there for me it's been really helpful how many mics will you use on a drum kit typically if you're doing a prog band at our studio we don't have the capabilities for drums because it, uh, it started as a uh, a singer songwriter studio so we're actually good friends with a studio down the street who will always give us a good deal if i can mic up everything as separately as i can it sounds bad in its own way, but it gives me the power over every specific thing that I want. Mm-hmm. Sure. Even then, you know, I'll have a two on the kick, top snare, bottom snare. I'll even have different room mics just for shits and giggles. You know, if I have the ability to, I'll, I'll mic up everything. For a couple jam bands, we didn't. So, okay, the most important things are the kick and snare. And if I have five, six inputs, then I'll do as much as I can to you know make sure everything's captured and sounds good. Why do you use the room mics instead of just using the specific mics? Like, what do you, what is that really giving you? I like heavier use of room mics in a music genre that requires less of a tight sound. Mm-hmm. My expertise with music is in thrash metal, mm-hmm. and in modern thrash metal, everything's so tight, punchy, and go 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 that aside from my overheads, my room mics might as well just not be there because it's going to start throwing these different atmospheres, vibes, kind of things that mm-hmm. muddies everything up. Right. With something like a jam band or any kind of more classic sound, you want that big air. Mm-hmm. Room mics, especially on drums, or you know, you have a room mic on the guitar, in a prog setting, it's very niche. Once you have everything mic'd, is there a way that you start constructing it? Do you start with the drums? Maybe you would start with the bass, or maybe it depends on the artist. What is typically your take on that? A thing that I like, a band will come in with demo tracks. You know, we're going to replace all of these, right? And they go, yes. So I'll play the demo tracks when the drummer's doing his thing, so he has everyone to play off of, and then I just get rid of the old tracks. And -hmm. then we'll play kind of replacement with that. Or if they just know their parts, you know, the drummer will play to a click. You know, we'll make sure everything's mapped out on Pro Tools. If the band is good enough and they know all their stuff, starting from scratch isn't the hardest thing. I always like to start with drums, bass, guitar. If there's any kind of synthesizers, do that. And then vocals. Since the vocals are just right in your face all the time, you kind of want them to get the atmosphere. So taking all of what we've talked about, what would a day-to-day look like for a band sitting in the studio? Drums will take two days if it's a crazy kind of a thing. So then I would say, you guys don't have to be here. You make sure you're good with everything. Your instrument's in good shape. Your hands are in good shape. Your voice is in good shape. After the two days, then it's your turn. Then it's your turn kind of a thing. As much as I like the band to be together for it, if I can break them apart to pay attention to their stuff, I think that's my preference Mm -hmm. because then it gives me personal time with the instrumentalist. I'm really interested in that iterative loop between mixing and mastering. I think mastering for a lot of musicians looks like a black art. 
But as you're mastering and you've set your crossover frequencies and you're starting to compress or bring bands up or down, you're going to bring certain elements up or down in the mix as well. At that point, are you sitting with musicians in the room talking about bringing kicks up or the bass up or down or, or are the musicians not even in the room at that point? The band, for the most part, will never be with me during mixes. Okay. I've had too many people hovering over my shoulder. Yeah. Uh, uh, just being like, can you, yeah, can you, can you bring up my vocal up? line? I'm like, I'm not there yet. I'm going to hit you. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. It's like, I promise I will bring you up in the mix. As of right now, I wish I had a channel strip on you so I could mute you. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Got it. I'm half and half of like, don't master your own stuff. Interesting. I'm absolutely an internet producer. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know what the internet pays. Right. On a full band note, the band won't be there. The band will get a lower quality version to listen to because they haven't paid in full yet. You know, they're like, oh, we know this great dude who masters our genre well. Perfect. Yeah. Get me in touch with him so that I know the parameters to send to. Yep. Now, if I'm mastering on my own, I let them know I don't have the absolute proper equipment, but I have the knowledge to get it via baseline, whether it's for distribution or for internet. A lot of them are like, cool, we don't care. Interesting. Um, and they're just like, make it sound good. Yeah. Uh, it's going to cost extra. Yeah. I thought you wanted it to sound crappy. <laughs> so do any bands anymore record live, meaning the entire band is in the studio? I'm thinking kind of like jam bands nowadays. How would they pull something off in the studio if they're all doing individual parts? To my knowledge and experience, it's very niche nowadays for a band to do a whole group records. In the past five years, I will say I know of two groups and then maybe, you know, maybe some local bands to have done that. The two that I know of that are the bigger bands. One is Meshuggah and the other is Alien Weaponry. For those kind of bands, it's just because they're that tight. For your average band, I wouldn't trust them because someone's going to mess up and then they're all going to mess up and then yeah. going to be like, okay, well, I guess we'll start again. I'm like, this is the eighth take. <laughs> You're on the clock. <laughs> yeah. Talent is at an all-time... Eh. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Sure. You know, it, it's like, punch me in again. Quantize that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Can you melodyne my guitar? Oh. <laughs> On like three different parts where I had a friend text me and go, my student is melodyning a bass. I'm like, Can you fire him? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's leaving the transients awesome. in. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Most of our listeners, if they're doing their own recording, are going to be coming from a home project studio. So, you know, Cakewalk, Logic, Reaper, those kind of DAWs. I'm interested in your perspective on Pro Tools. Obviously, that's the production studio DAW of choice. Mm -hmm. Is that really because of the off-board rack mount DSP? Is that kind of the key differential? Absolutely. And with computers and software capabilities becoming so much more grandiose, I think Reaper's a 64-bit program now, so Mm -hmm. it can absolutely take on so much more than Pro Tools could at Pro Tools 9. 
and you don't have to spend $2,000 on an external card that's right here at my feet. Yeah. I know guys who produce for Disney and things like that who have an Apollo and like a satellite unit. Other than that, they're on a laptop. Right. Then as we get out of here, Jeff, I just wanted to make sure that we give everyone a chance if they want to go look you up and find out more information about you and what you are up to. Is there any social media that they can catch you at or any place where they can find you online or learn more? Yeah, I use Twitter and Instagram and they're for very vastly different things. Um, Twitter is at Jeff Vicente. It's G-E-O-F-F-B-I-S-E-N-T-E. I use it a lot for my voiceover folks and just general life things. And on Instagram, I'm at Jeff Metal Ninja. Uh, it's G-E-O-F-F-M-E-T-A-L-N-I-N-J-A. That is a lot of my weightlifting. Jeff, I know there are some things that are close to your heart, like the bodybuilding and stuff like that. Is there anything you want to talk about real briefly that we can maybe get in there? Yeah, on top of music and voiceover and producing I'm an amateur competitive strongman, and it's been one of the funnest things in my life. It's actually kept me very sane if I'm stressed at work or things like that. It's the hobby that didn't become a job. So the very last thing I have for you before we turn you loose. Yeah. On this show, as we end every show, the three of us go around and we talk about one thing we've been listening to recently and one thing we recommend that people listen to. So what are those two things for you? Because things have been really crazy right now, and the last thing I need is a whole bunch of aggressive noise being blasted into my face, I have been listening to both The Last of Us soundtracks and a a soundtrack from the game Spiritfarer. (laughs) They're both very low energy, very soothing, but but also very emotional. Um, That is a great contrast if you're stressed out. What I would like people to listen to, I have been back on a huge Symphony X kick yes. because Russell Allen sounds like Dio if he were gigantic. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the proficiency of all the players and just the quality of music that they've been producing over the years could honestly ensnare anybody. Thank awesome. you. This was awesome. Thank you very much, Jeff. We'll let you go. Yeah. Thanks for coming, Jeff. Take care, guys. I really love talking to Jeff. I learned so much there. What a fun guy. Yeah, it was really nice to hear a professional talking about this. Yeah. Awesome. So as we close down the last episode of season one for us here, mm-hmm. we're going to go on hiatus for a couple of months and refill our emotional buckets put coins back in the machine, whatever your metaphor is you want to use. I want to do a quick round with you guys of what you recommend folks. And I'll start with you, Lee. What do you recommend folks listening to? Obviously, New Frost, Day and Age, excellent album. Liquid Tension Experiment, LTE3, also an excellent album. And by the time we're back for season two, there should be a new Dream Theater album, which I'm really looking forward to. And I'll just say a little slight twist here. If you really like the new Frost Day and Age, go pick up the album The Tall Ships by It Bites. This is the newer incarnation of the band that John Mitchell instigated, and it's a really good representation of John Mitchell's writing and playing skills in prog rock. 
And what about you, Craig? So this is going to be totally out of left field. My uh, wife and I often play Name That Tune, where she'll pull a CD out of the rack that she thinks I've never listened to and don't recognize. She pulled one out and popped it in. And it was something I hadn't heard in probably 30 years. Kazumi Watanabe. He is a, a guitar player. It's all instrumental. I don't know if you remember, uh, I mentioned a band called The Fence. Yeah. Adam Holtzman was a keyboard player. And the style of guitar playing and songwriting is similar to the guitar playing in The Fence. Both of them are studio musicians from the mid-80s. Um, so if you like uh, instrumental, kind of proggy, kind of poppy, really tasty, really good stuff. Kazumi Watanabe. Cool. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Craig. And I get the last word here. So I am going to recommend, in the spirit of what we listened to with Jeff tonight, Arion's Into the Electric Castle. <laughs> I'm fucking stunned you're right. I, I know. I don't know right. that you've ever recommended an Arion album. I'm recommending it specifically for this reason. There is the original 1998 version, and then there was the complete remaster that Aryan did in 2018. And in the spirit of what we talked to Jeff about tonight, listen to both versions and start to pick out what the changes that Aryan made, how he changed the mix, how he changed the master, uh, what he did to make the new version feel more robust, and uh, see if you can pick out those things that Jeff was talking about with us here. Cool. So you've got Arian Bingo card, hopefully filled. And I think you might you, have filled it just yeah, in several one times. episode tonight. Yeah, yep. you did well. You win nothing for filling your bingo card except for my immense gratitude. As we exit tonight, don't forget, as always, you can find our show on Twitter at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you guys about how this first season went for you guys, topics you might want us to cover in the future, etc. If you want to show us support, it's easy. Don't forget you can support us non-financially just by following the show wherever you get your podcast. Uh, This helps make sure that you don't miss an episode when we do come back from our hiatus, as well as make sure that the recommendation algorithms send our show to other folks that are searching for things. If you would like to support the show financially, we would appreciate that. We do have a coffee account over at coffee, that's ko-fi.com slash up3show. If you throw a few nickels to us there, we can send those nickels over to our hosting service and make sure the episodes stay up forever. So without further ado, we'll talk to you guys next time. All right. See you in the fall. Later. Hey folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.